This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. I will explore some of the dynamics and consequences of Syrian forced displacement in Lebanon through a case study of the village of Bednin. Bednin is located north of Tripoli and the Syrian northern border. The paper argues that the Syrian refugees did not only appear as passive victims of the crisis, but they drew on a diverse repertoire of coping strategies to deal with dispossession and displacements. They reduced consumption, exploited social networks, and work opportunities to create a new livelihood system for themselves. So while local practices of hospitality are widespread toward the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, they were also used as scapegoats for economic and political insecurity. And the displaced Syrians in turn dealt with both hardship and local prejudice by telling stories of an idealized future Syria thus blurring the image of a refugee and reconfiguring their stay as a temporary condition. So just short, uh, brief, uh, going through the methodology. I carried out fieldwork in last May, and it was carried out through the organisation called FAFA, which is an independent research organisation in Oslo, funded by the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I conducted 40 in-depth, semi-structured interviews with Syrian citizens and Lebanese citizens in Bebdin. And we also conducted a nationwide poll consisting of a national sample of 900 respondents. And I won't go further into detail, but this was the background for for the material we collected. Now, the presence of Syrians in Lebanon is not a new phenomenon. It has a shared political history uh, with Syria since the Ottoman times and the French colonial rule. Family and work-related bond historically cross borders and a large number of Syrians have been commuting or residing in Lebanon permanently or seasonally before the outbreak of the civil war. As such, one can argue that Syrians were already Lebanon's internal order, positioned legally and symbolically between Lebanese citizens and the Palestinian refugees. Since the beginning of the current crisis, Lebanon has maintained its open border policy receiving the largest total of Syrians in the region. Near to one million Syrians have registered or are awaiting registration with the UNHR. And this is quite a staggering number in a country of only 4.2 million people. So it makes up nearly a fifth of the country's current population. And as you can see from this rather poor uh, map, uh, they have self-settled across Lebanon, predominantly in the Beka, the northern region, Beirut and its suburbs, and the southern region. Lebanon's experience with Palestinian refugees since 1948 affects its practices and policies towards the displaced Syrians. So far, Lebanese authorities have refused the UN to establish separate camps for Syrians out of fear that history will repeat itself. The establishment of armed Palestinian groups in camps was one of the reasons for the civil war in the country between 1975 and 1990. And the, fear, the Lebanese authorities fear that the establishment of new camps will increase the likelihood that Syrians will settle permanently and that they will form spaces of resistance for Syrians in exile. 
And the fear is not completely unfounded. Sunni Muslim groups and the Shia movement Hezbollah are already involved on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war, which has led to an escalation in two of the country's largest cities, Tripoli and Beirut. So it, it is in the context of the threat and actuality of violence that Lebanon offers hospitality to displaced Syrians. So Bibnin is a village of around 40,000 residents, and like other small villages in the poor Acre region, it is far below the national average in terms of employment, education, and income. At the time of fieldwork, the mayor's office could report that between six to 900 families were residing in Bibnin, or 5,000 to 6,000 refugees. They were reported to be urban and rural poor from the Homs region, Sunni Muslims and predominantly supporters of the Free Syrian Army. The Syrians typically arrive empty-handed and traumatized by the brutality of war, the fragmentation, or loss of family members. They have limited access to housing, education, and healthcare. From the point of view of the international humanitarian community, the absence of official camps make it harder to ensure refugee protection and the coordination of aid relief. The refugees themselves, however, said that they preferred living outside camps where they had better opportunities to influence the situation. And in fact, some explicitly refer to horror stories from Zatri, although apparently the conditions um, have improved. History has shown that refugees, even under extremely difficult situations, have the ability to mobilize forces to improve their circumstances. And the case of Syrians is, is not different in this matter. In light of the shortcomings of the aid community and governmental fear of the consequences of integration, the refugees applied numerous coping strategies. And throughout the interviews, the coping strategy that was most commonly mentioned was the reduction in food, the quality and quantity of food. So many uh, only had one meal a day, often a late lunch based on potatoes, which was the cheapest market, um, product on the market. And rent for accommodation was another common area with potential for reduced consumption. So over time, as this crisis stretches out in time, many choose to move from the open rental market to cheaper housing options um, designed for other use and accommodation. Refugees had turned shops, garages, storerooms, and even a slaughterhouse into makeshift shelters. And this is an old slaughterhouse in in um, Bebnin. Others lived in informal camps in, plas in simple plastic tent constructions um, directly on the ground without water, electricity and sanitation. And clusters of such informal living arrangements have popped up all over um, Lebanon. There are apparently more than 400 informal tent camps around Lebanon now to accommodate Syrian refugees. Other refugees reported to use kinship categories to reconstruct social networks in exile. Back in Syria, refugees lived close to their relatives' ho uh, homes, and after the civil war and subsequent flights to Lebanon, families got scattered, which in turn has contributed to the loss or weakening of social support from kinship. Some Syrians formed new social relationships with non-kin individuals, such as host families or other refugees, and they applied kinship categories like brother, mother, father, and sister to emphasize their obligation and roles associated with close families. And it could be to provide advice on how to manage in the local community or provide protection. The coping strategies applied that had the most severe consequence in the host state 
is that of employment in the unskilled labour market, such as work in agriculture, construction or in small businesses. Prior to the crisis, Syrian migrant workers would typically accept lower wages than Lebanese due to the comparatively cheaper cost of living in Syria. And now the Syrian refugees compete with Lebanese for even lower wages since they can combine work and aid. And this coping strategy is closed for the poor Lebanese. And data from the national survey shows that the overwhelming majority of Lebanese respondents believe that the Syrians are taking jobs from the Lebanese and pushing down wages. So this is obviously just a perception, but it, it still shows that they are being used as scapegoats for an economy in decline. On the one hand, they are, they, there's an element of basic sympathy and compassion which can be identified through uh, a diverse scope of activities, such as Lebanese families hosting refugees in their homes and properties and providing basic support like clothes and, and food. And on the other hand, um, they're being blamed for the security failures and economic failures of the country, and particularly as the crisis stretches out in time. And refugees I interviewed reported incidents of physical violence. Muhammad, for instance, a 33-year-old teacher from Homs, said that he had once been called a Syrian dog while being pushed off the bus. And he felt that he constantly had to challenge the, the dual stigma of being a refugee and a Syrian. And he knew of Syrians who tried to change their accent or, or other characteristics to not, not to be subjected to harassment. But again, this is a class issue. This is predominantly affecting those from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds. Some dealt with the hardship of exile by reconfiguring their stay as a temporary condition. I know I will return home soon. My heart is in Syria, said Selma, and I have her approve, approval to show her photo. She invited me to her family's modest shelter, a narrow hallway, and she told me that she had fled from Idlib with her husband and five children after the family's home was burned and destroyed by government forces. And they had been internally displaced inside Syria for a year because before they came to Bednin. Life used to be good, she said, but I'm very pessimistic about our future here. Only God knows how long we have to live like this, like animals. We fled here, but I do not feel safe. Hopefully we will be back home soon. So just some concluding remarks. So three years into the conflict, the displaced Syrians are affected by both governmental and ordinary people's ambivalence towards their long-term presence. And the self-settled refugees applied numerous strategies to cope with life outside formal camps. They took on new role as an imagined relative, a worker, or a temporary guest, or a temporary guest, thus bypassing and avoiding the category of a refugee. But the question remains how sustainable their creating coping strategies are. Reducing consumption might be effective in, in, in the short term, but refugees express concern that it's negatively impacting both their health and well-being in the long term. And their entry into the unskilled labour market, combined with a sense of financial differential treatment, is also already causing social tensions. And although the displaced Syrians in Lebanon expressed hope of a return to Syria in the near future, there are few signs that the crisis will be short-lived. In the northern region of Lebanon, 40% believe that the Syrian refugees will settle permanently. And a protracted refugee situation will necessarily alter the demographic landscape dramatically. 
Moreover, it means that Lebanese authorities would need to reconsider the reluctance to long-term integration and that ordinary Lebanese can imagine a future where Syrians and Lebanese would have to be considered as equals and not just temporary guests. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, good morning. Um, today, uh, my paper is going to examine how Syrian and Syrian-Palestinian refugees in Lebanon experience and construct understandings of their changing identities through an analysis of two uh, cultural forms of expression. Um, the first is a documentary film produced by the Palestinian uh, Lebanese filmmaker Carol Mansour, and it's in collaboration with the Heinrich Boll Foundation. It's called Not Who We Are, and it was uh, released in October 2013. Um, and it focuses on the stories of five Syrian and Syrian-Palestinian uh, refugee women who have fled uh, Syria to Lebanon since April 2001. Uh, the, the second initiative that I'm going to briefly look at is something called Siri Arts, and it's run by um, Lebanese uh, NGO Kayani and partnered with uh, UNICEF. And they held uh, an organised art exhibition in Beirut, and it, was, it consisted of donated artwork au auctioned online to raise funds uh, for Syrian children. Uh, now, just, just in terms of uh, how I'm going to try and frame the paper, I'm, I'm drawing on sociologist uh, Nash, um, and in 2009 she um, argued that, um, paradoxically, the cosmopolitization of law doesn't actually lead to greater equality. Rather than um, legally promoting universal human rights, uh, the legalization of uh, international human rights law has led to inequality as evidenced through a proliferation of sub-statuses and uh, she characterizes the refugee as what she calls a sub-citizen which I'll, I'll go into a bit more and then just juxtaposing her arguments with kind of a, a, a different way of um, framing uh, issues of citizenship and marginalization I draw on Engin Eisen's um, theorizations um, He's written about what he calls acts of citizenship and the notion of um, those that might be legally marginalised actually being participative actors, constructing their own identities. Um, and uh, in this sense, he talks of them being activist citizens, or they're not citizens in terms of a legal definition of uh, citizenship. So um, what I'm going to do first is um, look, looking in a little bit more depth at um, Nash's arguments and juxtaposing those in relation to Eisen's theorizations about activist citizens. And I explore these issues in relation to cultural expression. And then um, I'll focus briefly on the two um, case study examples that I've, I've mentioned um, and just provide a very brief socio-political context, although we, uh, maybe I'll skim over that since we've, we've already had, had some of that um, background and probably many of you are, are familiar with, with some of those aspects of the context. So, uh, too marginalised to act, refugees as sub-citizens or refugees as activist citizens? So whilst legal migrants are often entitled to many civil and social rights in European nation-states, as well as being protected by legislation at the transnational level and subnationally, the same can't be said for refugees, asylum seekers and uh, illegal migrants. And uh, so in this regard, um, Yasmin Soysel's conclusion 
that the logic of personhood supersedes the logic of national citizenship perhaps is a bit premature. And in particular, refugees seem to be a, a, a clear challenge to this uh, thesis. Um, kind of in, in a similar vein, um, Costas Duzinas um, has talked about the relationship between human rights and citizenship. And he talks about the gap between man and citizen. And he argues that it's through citizenship that we become human. Um, that is, attain human rights. So for refugees, the perceived lack of rights is not lack of rights per se, but rather the condition that comes from the lack of being a recognised member of a political community and its associated uh, legal protections. So this lack of uh, recognition is dehumanising. Um, Nash uh, uh, critiques Ben Habib, um, who argues that citizenship has been cosmopolitanized through the legal application of human rights, and so that within democratic societies, national laws of citizenship are brought in line with universal principles of international human rights. But Nash argues that you know, Ben Habib is arguing at a level of extra, uh, abstraction, and she's arguing as a political theorist, and so her arguments aren't really sociologically contextualized. And she um, points out that rights are not just a legal issue, but, quote, dependent on social structures through which power, material resources and meanings are created and circulated. Um, she makes a convincing case for how, paradoxically, human rights have resulted in new forms of inequality through a, uh, a proliferation of citizenship statuses. And she characterises a number of um, types of citizenship called super-citizen, marginal-citizen, quasi-citizen, sub-citizen and un-citizen and these are um, in her kind of characterizations are in a kind of hierarchy and uh, albeit that she's developed this kind of schema with Europe and USA in mind, so for example for her sub-citizens are those waiting for asylum decisions and who can't legally work or claim state benefit whereas un-citizens are people who perhaps are undocumented migrants or they might be in so-called non-places like Guantanamo Bay. Um, so whilst keeping in mind that um, these, you know, she's developed these statuses um, in terms of thinking about Europe and the states, I found her work interesting in terms of just the idea of proliferation of citizenship statuses in the context of international human rights law, or even in the absence of application of human rights law. And so... I think it has some applicability in the Lebanese context for thinking about the status of Syrian and then also Syrian-Palestinian uh, uh, refugees. Um, now, as a kind of contrast in approach, ISIN, um, rather than focusing on the relationship of human rights and citizenship per se, um, he actually argues that we need to think of citizenship in a new way. And so he proposes this idea of acts of citizenship, where... He says that we shouldn't just think of citizenship in terms of a legal status or as a practice. Um, but his idea of acts is where uh, people do things so th that they actually constitute themselves as um, you know, political actors. Um, and these are not kind of routine things that are done. These are kind of interjections. So it's a kind of rupture. And he says that these things open up possibilities and challenge the routines and practices that can often maintain the status quo. And so he talks about intentionality, agency, purposiveness and responsibility. Those are some of the themes that he explores in relation to this idea of acts of citizenship. 
Now, in academic and policy discourses, as well as through presentations in the media, and we've heard a lot of, about this already, the construct of the refugee um, as victim and recipient of humanitarian aid is a dominant one. Um, and the framing of the refugee as a non-threatening and apolitical victim worthy of charity can be understood on one level in terms of the needs of international agencies, uh, aid agencies such as UNHCR, projecting images that support their role in raising funds uh, from nation states. Um, and the intellectual history of the construct of uh, refugee has been articulately traced by Amalki, 1995, who illustrates that the dehistorization, depoliticization, and dehumanization of refugees um, uh, occurs both through the international legal machinery of international humanitarian law and also the proliferation of uh, documentation by international aid agencies such as UNHCR and UNRWA. Now, the domain of cultural expression, whether through oral or visual arts, so poetry, theatre, film, art, um, enables what I'd call a rehistoricization, a repoliticization, and a rehumanization of the lived uh, experience of uh, refugees. So these media, rather than being safe or apolitical forms of expression that are sometimes associated with the cultural domains of art, food, and music, for example, can actually be very potent by connecting to audiences through visual and auditory senses and connecting emotion and politics. I'm just going to mention um, two or three uh, examples of um, others who have uh, done work on um, linking refugees and, and cultural expression because I've, I've drawn on some of their ideas. Um, so Bulata in 2003 talks of what he calls a remembering um, to describe the work of Palestinian artists in Lebanon. And he quotes uh, Omi Baba describing their art as a painful remembering, a putting together of the dismembered past to make sense of the trauma of the present. And this um, theme of um, you know, explicit engagement with uh, violence and trauma is the focus of um, MacDonald's article um, on poetics and the performance of violence in Israel-Palestine, um, where he uh, highlights what he calls the performative capacities of violence to generate uh, culture. Um, and he proposes that for Palestinian refugees, it's become necessary to reenact re such suffering uh, through performative media, music, poetry, film, literature, cinema, and dance, um, so as to articulate their distinctively Palestinian identities and to express solidarity with family and friends living under occupation. So he's highlighting both kind of a more functionalist or strategic role for these forms of cultural expression. Um, and so here in mind is um, perhaps a more international audience, um, but also um, the need to connect and the idea of solidarity and focus on aesthetic elements as well for um, the Palestinian uh, community. Um, and then finally, Dina Dajani, uh, she works with uh, ISIN uh, on a large project um, called Citizenship After Orientalism. And in her reflection on performances held at the South Bank Centre in London in September 2012 on Arab revolutions. Um, she notes that accounts from participants um, of the revolutions from across the region entail stories of violence, uh, trauma and tragedy. And from the audience's perspective, this can be uncomfortable where 
there's a desire for a linear story towards success. And she says that what, what instead was the case, that instead of these stories of linear, uh, linearity leading to success, were instead stories of uh, resilience. Okay, so um, just flagging up a few points here just to contextualise um, the context of the case studies. So clearly we're uh, in the context of the Arab revolutions that started um, at the end of uh, December 2010 um, with the events happening first in Tunisia, then in, in Egypt, in Libya, and then uh, starting in Syria with protests starting in March 2011, transforming into armed conflict and civil war. And then just some basic statistics which probably you're familiar with, you know, many internally displaced people in Syria, figure from UNHCR is 6.5 million, and 4 million refugees in the larger region. And UNHCR has characterised this as the most significant refugee crisis in modern times. Now, in Lebanon, um, by the end of this year, um, UNHCR has estimated 1.5 million Syrian refugees and 100,000 Syrian-Palestinian refugees. And this is on top of the very complicated uh, Lebanese demographics, um, you know, 18 sects with uh, the three largest sects being Maronite, Christian, Sunni Muslim and Sh uh, Shia Muslim. And of course, the long-term Palestinian po population of about 400,000 who, um, who, and it's described that they're really um, in the worst situation across uh, the region of Palestinians in other Arab countries um, with very severely curtailed uh, civil, political, economic and social rights and no foreseeable route to citizenship. Okay. Um, and also just to say that UNHCR has a responsibility for the Syrian uh, refugees and UNRWA for Syrian-Palestinian uh, refugees. I'm going to talk a little bit now about this documentary film, Not Who We Are. It's a film in Arabic uh, with English subtitles and directed by uh, the acclaimed uh, Palestinian-Lebanese uh, filmmaker Carol Mansour. Uh, and it's in collaboration, as I mentioned, with the Heinrich Boll Foundation's Middle East office in Beirut. And it was released in October 2013. And Carol Mansour is well known for her work. She's done films on domestic workers' abuse and child labour in Egypt, Lebanon and Yemen. And she's won international awards for her documentary films. And she's also been commissioned, she's done films for the UN uh, and NGOs. Uh, this film focuses on the experiences of Syrian and Syrian-Palestinian uh, women refugees in Lebanon. And Mansour explains that the title of the film was eventually decided on as almost all the women at some point um, th throughout the making of the film um, said, this is not who we are. And the advertising script for the film positions it in relation to a wider global context where tens of millions of people are displaced by war, but it focuses in particular on women's experiences. And it provides a rationale uh, as raising international awareness on women refugees' sexual vulnerability in times of war and in the context of increased media accounts of trafficking, sexual exploitation and early marriages. Um, Mansour says her main 
audience target is the Lebanese, and she talks a lot about the negative attitudes of the Lebanese uh, to to, uh, the Syrian population. Um, And her idea is that by focusing on personal stories that there'll be some kind of um, uh, connection there, that they're no longer just, as she says, strangers on the street. Um, And so uh, we hear these stories of, of these five women Um, And they talk, the women talk uh, amazingly, very frankly, intimately and sometimes poetically about about their lives. Uh, Visually, the film is predominantly made up of a series of simple shots about the daily lives of the women. And the environment's quite basic, and so the film sequence isn't very visually rich to watch, but the power of the film comes from the intensity of the women's stories. And these stories are interspersed with photos which are added to illustrate memories. The women come from a range of different uh, backgrounds. Uh, So, for example, there's a young woman in her 20s from Halab. She's an artist uh, and and graduate from a middle-class background living in Beirut in a a mixed uh, uh, male-female household with her sister. In contrast, there are two young mothers... Um, who are living in, um, in the Bekaa, near a warehouse with babies, and the five families to a single tent. And then Samar, which was not her real name, it was a pseudonym, and her face isn't filmed uh, in, in the film, and she's in severe financial difficulties with a sick husband, and she's made the emotionally difficult decision to marry off her two teenage daughters, aged 14 and 16, and then finally there's Siham, who's a, a Palestinian-Syrian social worker from Yarmouk, a refugee camp in Damascus. And she's a single mother in her 30s with twin daughters aged six, and she was widowed after her husband was killed in front of her and her daughters when they were distributing aid in Yarmouk. And she now lives in Shatila, refugee camp in Beirut, and she's running a school for Syrian children. And as a Palestinian from Syria, she, Siham is in the most precarious position legally, uh, given that Lebanon doesn't officially recognise Syrian Palestinians as refugees and also under the remit of UNRWA rather than uh, UNHCR. So, um, whilst the blurb talks about this documentary providing an insight into the refugee experience... Um, what we see really are narratives of ordinary women trying to make sense of um, physically and uh, psychologically traumatic experiences. And although the title Not Who We Are implies a disjuncture with the past, or they say this is not who we are because they feel they're having to do things that they wouldn't normally do, um, uh, in, in fact this becomes kind of deconstructed through the film. So new identities are performed, and these women are being constituted as, as strong and resilient, and so not, not so much disconnected from the, their accounts of their past, present, and, and hopes uh, for the future. Uh, the second uh, example I'm just quickly going to mention is Siri Arts, which was started in August uh, 2013. And the chairwoman of the initiative is Nora Jumblat. So she's the wife of Willie Jumblat, uh, a well-known Lebanese politician of a Druze denomination, leader of the Progressive Social Party. And both of them of, of Syrian origin, born, born in, she's born in Damascus and daughter of the former Syrian defence minister, uh, Ahmed al-Sharabati. 
Um, Nora Jamblatt's an art historian and she has an art gallery and she's also the chairperson of a well-known uh, festival in Lebanon that started in the 80s called the Beta Dean Festival which has had international recognition and it brings many international uh, performers. Now this initiative had its official opening on October the 30th in 2013 and it featured the work of 145 artists um, drawing from 25 galleries across Syria and the region and diaspora, and curated by the Director of Contemporary Art from Sotheby's in New York. And uh, it included paintings, photographs, and sculptures, and they were displayed from the 30th of October to 10th of November at the Beirut Exhibition Centre. And they've been donated, and the proceeds go towards supporting Syrian refugee children in Lebanon. And themes, as one would expect, are... uh, focus on violence and centre on death and echo some of the themes that that's why I mentioned earlier the work of um, Bulata uh, and also MacDonald the idea of performative capacities of violence to generate uh, culture um, and then just quickly to say that um, this should be contextualised in, in terms of that there's been a huge influx into Beirut of Syrian art music and literature since the unfolding of the crisis. But there's a longer history to this, a flourishing art scene since the 1990s, also transnational art networks from 2000s. And there's a new initiative now called the Art Residence Alay in Alay, Lebanon. And this is set up by a Syrian uh, engineer. And she hosts Syrian artists and she provides them with room and board and art materials. And then they leave a piece of artwork and then she auctions this on international uh, markets uh, for them. So in this uh, presentation, I've I've explored how Syrian and Syrian-Palestinian refugees in Lebanon experience and construct understandings of their changing identities through two forms of cultural expression, the documentary film and also the second initiative, uh, Syri Arts. And um, I've uh, tried to attempt how, uh, within this domain... um, uh, that this enables what I'd call a rehistorization, repoliticization, and rehumanization of the lived uh, experience of refugees uh, through connecting emotionally, politically, and personally uh, to audiences as what Eisen would call acts of citizenship, despite marginalization as Nash would characterize as uncitizens. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, We are going to present the work that we finished just uh, four days ago. I come from Jordan. Uh, Jordan, in the last 50 years, hosted influx over influx of refugees from uh, Palestine, Iraq, Libya, and most, most recently from Syria. I live in Erbed, 20 kilometers from the borders of Syria. I heard the bombings and I saw the smoke. As my city filled with Syrian refugees, I decided that I want to do something. I invited my British friend, Karen, visual anthropologist and filmmaker, to make sure that the voices of the refugees are heard and their situation is seen. We felt our research would be more objective with the inside, insider-outsider eye. 
here, this is the map of Jordan. Uh, most of the Syrian refugees entering northern Jordan are from Dara, only 20 miles from Erbet. And just the area of Erbet and around Erbet, around Sartorra, many villages there. The rural area are around Erbet. Uh, just uh, to let you know that uh, Dara and Ramtha in Huran region. Huran region, uh, it's, you see this line, the, the, the black line divided the area. It was one region before the colonization of Jordan and Syria. And this, the official border for, uh, for Syria and Jordan divided the, uh, the region. It's like quarter in Jordan and the rest in Syria. So this is to show that the same people who live in Huran and uh, in Al-Ramtha, they share the same cultural issues. This is the religion plays a significant role in their, in their lives. And uh, marriages, movements, uh, trade uh, were very common between the two population. And the Syrian refugees who came to Jordan, actually, they were coming to their families and relatives, and uh, they, don't, they didn't consider themselves as refugees. And uh, the point that all the people think that the refugees concentrated in the camps in Jordan. But it's 80% of the Syrian refugees living in Jordan have settled outside the refugee camps, which is shocking. And uh, because of this, we wanted to do our paper about the refugees who live in out camps. And over 80% of these refugees are women and children. Uh, and in the eight months between April and December 2013, the population of Al-Zatari, the largest refugee camp in Jordan, dropped by 40%. And now we're going to show you why the number has dropped. So, Karen. Thank you. So um, we decided to spend the most, the majority of this presentation just giving space for um, the people that we've been with for the last four months to speak to you. Um, so we, we, we spoke to... Spent some time with about 20 families in the um, area of uh, Erbid, around, in and around Erbid, and um, some in the city, some in the very uh, urban context, and some in the slightly less urban context of Al Ramtha, which is much closer to the border. And of those 20, uh, we found many similar patterns uh, and experiences, and we decided tying in nicely with um, the previous uh, piece, we decided the important thing was to allow people to really get into the lives of, of um, two families. We've select, we selected two families. And the experience of those two families um, represents in many ways the experience of hundreds, thousands of families. So um, this lady, Bara, uh, she, um, two weeks ago, was still living in Syria, in Dara, she was uh, lost her home and left. Um, yeah, about two weeks ago, had an eight-day journey um, to get to uh, Al Zatari first, 
spent three days in Al-Zatari and then made the decision to uh, risk whatever she might find outside of the camps. We also had heard that the conditions in Zatari had improved a lot, but this was very recent experience for her and we, we understood that especially for the single women um, there's a lot of other reasons that we can go into maybe in the discussion afterwards as to the choice to leave the camps um, uh, we wanted to we decided um, to focus for the presentation on uh, these, these threats that have already been identified in some of the other speakers uh, at the conference so far and uh, identified by the UNHCR of particularly the non-camp, the risks of living outside of the camp um, have been highlighted as, as being the fact that young, young, um, young boys are being recruited by the armed groups. Uh, young children are, are, are working, having to work due to um, all the financial difficulties that the refugees are in. And again, as uh, the story of, from the Palestinian film it's quite common that um, the young uh, daughters are seen as a potential source of income for early marriage. Not that that didn't happen before the crisis and before they were refugees, but it has been estimated that that is increasing quite dramatically. Um, domestic, sexual and gender-based violence in the homes, especially outside of the camp, it seems there's a lot more isolation, which we'll go on to later. Um, uh, which is one of the most profound things that we found during our, our stays, is, is, uh, or spent, the time we spent with the families, is how extraordinarily isolated they all are. Even if they live close to one another for all sorts of reasons, they, there's very little social interaction. So we've, we've taken those, those issues and, and we're just going to show you um, some personal stories of our, of our fa from our families. So our main family, one of the families, um, uh, Abu Haytham's family, they have six children. Their eldest son uh, was recruited into the Free Syrian Army uh, about uh, yeah, eight months ago. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll just play you how his parents feel about that. So that's their oldest son. Um, uh, the um, father, unfortunately, had an accident and broke his legs and is unable to work. So the income he was bringing in stopped. And so their uh, a younger son, Mohammed, started work um, some time ago. Uh, actually, we put here that he started to work at the age of 14. He started to work in Jordan at the age of 14. He was actually already working in, in, Syria. in Syria from about 12. 12. So that's Mohammed. Um, the rest of the family, um, there are two daughters who, who are in school, and they made a choice. We have talked to them a lot about the choice they made not to... Um, to consider uh, them uh, asking for them to marry young, but to allow them to go to school um, and, and cope with the consequences. The other family um, that we spent a lot of time with is Abu Nur's family. The, um, the lady you met at the beginning, Bara, she is uh, 
part of the extended family, which is why she was in this house. Um, but the Abu Nur's family, they've been in um, Jordan for a couple of years since the height of the, the beginning of the crisis. Um, and they uh, have um, chosen to um, marry their eldest daughter, um, two two men from South, uh, United Arab Emirates came, two brothers came and uh, looking for young brides and uh, the girl Nasreen um, and um, her cousin uh, married and were taken to um, Dubai to Dubai um, we don't know, it's a little bit unsure exactly what happened there what, what, what um, uh, we know is that uh, after less than a year, the cousin stayed and has already had her first child, but uh, Nasreen, the, the daughter in this house, was divorced and sent back um, and now is a 14-year-old divorced girl, ashamed and, and shut in the house. So we'll show you her story. What we're trying to do in these clips is, is um, touch on the emotional side of these experiences and maybe in the discussions we can talk about the, the logistics but uh, one area that um, unifies all this is this sense of, of isolation which, which uh, the whole film when we finish making it will we'll focus on and the paper if, uh, if you get to read it focuses more on um, this is just a quote from Hanan the last woman who spoke who's the, um, actually stepmother of Nasreen uh, prison is better than here because in prison you can see people you can meet and talk to people and laugh and joke here there's nothing I spend the whole day sitting at home without going out nobody comes to visit me even if we laugh it's not from our heart it's just to show the people that we're happy most of the time at night I spend it crying we found a lot of crying women it was a, almost a, the one thing that was unifying them that they could share and do together um, and uh, We'll maybe talk about this more in the question and answer. I'll hand over to Ruba for the conclusion. Uh, to conclude, in this ethnography, we have shown that the extremely large and growing out-of-camp refugee population in and around Erbed are already at risk of increasing incidents of recruitment of young boys by armed groups, child labor, early marriages, and endemic depression and isolation. And solution to this need to be found as a matter of urgency. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, the Refugee Study Center to invited me and to all of you to be here. Um, my presentation is on the um, Syrians living in London uh, and how they got involved into, in the revolution uh, at, the very, at the early stage of the revolution, so it was based in 2012. I wasn't an activist before, because there wasn't really an active role in Syria, but I got to a certain age when my dad started to talk about Hama. Personally, my family was not affected by Hama, but it was one of the reasons why my father started talking more about politics with his friends at university. People know, didn't know about the Hama massacre. He was forced to go to Hama to install prefabricated houses. As he was building, he drove a skull in a field. He parked, and they ordered him to bring it down. 
It drove over a, ma a mass grave. That story and the fear in the people's eyes is that's when uh, he went back to Damascus and started to talk about politics, asked people what happened in Hama, and started to talk with some people who were Muslim brothers. None of my family went to jail because of Afez al-Assad, but they lived a time when they heard that kind of stories. You heard that story, you're part of that story, and uh, you live in that time, in that culture of fear. They transferred that to us. I live in the culture of fear for a while. This uh, testimony from Adil is one of the many I collected uh, during the summer in 2012 among Syrians in London, involved in different ways uh, with the, the uprising. Uh, before the revolution, the uh, Syrian expatriate community uh, lacked significant social ties. Uh, although a strong bond was maintained with uh, relatives living in Syria through calls, lectures, and uh, also holidays when it was allowed. This dichotomy was uh, explained partly because of the atmosphere of deep suspicion created by the perceived and real presence of members of the Muhabarat in London. In other cases, there was no interest in interacting with other Syrian nationals, and, uh, and the encounters were uh, quite exceptionally for uh, celebrating Eid and other religious holidays. Since March to, uh, 2011, many expatriate Syrians started to organize demonstrations, flash mobs, fundraising events, and other actions in solidarity with protesters in Syria, which over the time have attracted a growing number of participants. Numerous organizations and associations were founded, whose main activities included raising awareness and also provide, providing humanitarian assistance in favor of people displaced in Syria by the unfolding violence. So, the Syrian community in London has been engaged in a process of shaping a diasporic consciousness through its support to the Syrian revolution, a process that parallels the construction of a, a new Syrian identity in Syria at the very beginning of the, of, the, of the uprising that was in antithesis to the official identity promoted by the Afel al-Assad regime. Uh, this new discourse of being Syrian is uh, characterized by a sense of uh, unity that transcends uh, narrow sectarian affiliations. And uh, although the intensification of the violence and uh, the fragmented nature of the political opposition have uh, had a negative impact on this, uh, on this consolidation of this uh, sense of unity, cannot be denied that a distinct Syrian diasporic identity has emerged. So the following uh, reflections are an attempt to understand the particular historical contingency that underlined the emergence uh, of this new diasporic community, as well as the mechanism uh, that underlined the emergence of uh, this diasporic uh, subjectivity uh, that has been constituted through this process. Uh, Despite the displacement, uh, and indeed, there was a surreal character uh, that made the perception of the regime even more pervasive and penetrating amongst Syrians in London. This uh, phantasmatic presence uh, of the Syrian state was not only the result of the atmosphere of uh, deep suspicion, Syrians in exile have internalized uh, al-Assad regime's power through fear, pain, and melancholia, conveyed by their memories of state violence and migration. 
Nevertheless, before investigating this, this dynamics uh, for which this diasporic subjectivity has been crafted, we need to turn our gaze towards Syria and its history, but also towards the state microphysics of power, because it is through these discourses that uh, the complex and sometimes ambiguous uh, relationship between uh, al-Assad regime and uh, its diasporic subject can be unveiled. So, in Ambiguity of Domination, Lisa Widin argues that the iconography and the rhetoric of power in Hafez al-Assad regime did not just represent power, but it created it. However, such rhetoric and symbolism did not produce so much belief as obedience. So the state was able to maintain its power by forcing citizens to act as if they believed the regime's depiction of the nation, thus creating what Navarro Yashin called uh, a cynical subject. Navarro Yashin argues that despite criticism, cultural resistance, and political opposition, there is a pragmatic reproduction of the state from its margin through everyday life practices. Nonetheless, in the Syrian case, this process of everyday statecraft from the margin was not achieved just through people's obedience and uh, cynicism. Since the inception of uh, the al-Assad regime, people experienced the pervasiveness of the state through its immediated violence. Particularly at the end of the 1970s, the regime faced and repressed an almost nationwide uprising. After the assassination of the, on, the, on the president in 1980, the regime responded to terrorism with state terrorism. And uh, the escalation of violence uh, only ended uh, in uh, 1982 with the notorious massacres of uh, Hama and the imprisonment of thousands of uh, Syrian dissidents or alleged ones. In her analysis of this event, Sawa Ismail observes that violence became a medium of state power not only the real and physical violence employed against its prisoners and victims, but also violence came to occupy the domain of the surreal trauma and imagination. Whereas the Hama and Tadmor prison massacres have had a strong impact on people's social imaginaries, it has been the constant looming threat of incarceration for political reasons with its attendant specters of tortures and disappearance that have pervasively shaped Syrian subjectivity. The tale of torture suffered by some victims have been transformed into rumors and whispers, while these appearances condemned the everyday life of the families to a painful emotional limbo. Both these experiences function as part of the machinery of state power. However, they did not just represent the ultimate act of that punitive system, but a core element of its mechanism, ensuring a widespread fear among Syrians. In political life in Cairo, new quarters, Ismail suggests that it is through fear that, as much as fantasy, that the state insinuates itself into people's structures of feeling. It is through fear that the state is inscribed when it has been eroded. This observation could also describe the relationship 
between uh, Syrians and a state funded on uh, uh, structural violence and uh, proliferation of multiple intelligence agencies and the Praetorian Guards whose aim was the protection of the regime. So the performances of political violence witnessed and experienced by many Syrians in the 1980s are profoundly connected to their modes of feelings. This politics of, the, of emotion based on pain and fear as well as obedience has dominated the relationship between the Syrian subject and the state. Indeed, during my fieldwork, Khalil and Adil argued that with the revolution many Syrians were able to break the wall of fear created by the regime. From these testimonies, uh, it, cannot, it cannot be denied that uh, this politics of emotion had uh, a hand in the genesis of the uprising and in the rupture of the regime's function of normality. The articulation of memories, particularly memories of violence, produces a sense of continuity and community that can be reinforced in the context of migration. In the Syrian case, first-hand and generationally transmitted memories are deeply shaped Syrians' emigratory experiences. However, prior to the revolution, their engagement with these memories led to an artful construction of silence. Not far from the nationals living in Syria, many migrants have shrouded in silence the state violence they witnessed. Indeed, they did not share this silenced memories with other Syrians unless openly affiliated to a political opposition group. Though they, uh, though they were extremely conscious of the regime's uh, corruption and arbitrary violence, silence and the politics of as if were inseparably intermingled with their life in Syria as well as their experience of migration. Silencing and the fear behind silencing is not uh, to erase memory to seek suggested. So silence is a continuous mode of self-surveillance in both public and private spheres for which the self is constituted. However, in many, case, uh, in many cases of second-generation Syrians, the most intimate social institution, the family, became a site of broken silences and voicing of memories. The past and its violence have been internalized and made part of their political subjectivity and national identity. Indeed, the culture of fear conveyed by their families was reinforced during brief periods of time spent in, the, in their country of origin. So Adil and Zainab evoked how during their visits in Syria, their mothers imposed strict limits on what children were allowed to say. Don't, don't tell your dad's name, don't mention why you're here. If you see a picture, don't ask about who is in that picture. Just don't talk about anything. Censorship was either self-imposed, uh, even thoughts were too loud, as uh, Karin told me, or imposed by members of their families. Zainab uh, cousins warned her little brother with fear in her, their faces to not say that Afiz al-Assad is a bad man because we are not allowed to say that. 
In other occasions, the regime was the main actor in spree, uh, of a spreading terror through its control over expatriate Syrians. The encounters with the Muhabarat were inevitable, as uh, were interrogations and insult, um, as experienced by Hum Hamid, the wife of a former member of the Muslim Brothers from Hama, upon her return to Syria in 2006. In contrast to Holocaust post-memory, in which photography, objects, and memorials uh, played a crucial and concrete role in uh, embodying victims' uh, experience of trauma, second-generation uh, Syrians engage with memory of violence uh, through the medium of narratives. So the, this internalization of state power is taking place in the intimate sphere of, uh, uh, of the family through the encouragement of obedience. However, it is also in the context of the family that the narratives uh, of the regime's repressive nature and uh, the exile find a voice. Thus, young Syrians uh, were gaining full awareness of the regime's uh, strategies uh, to maintain its power, and uh, at the same time, they were, uh, they were being initiated to, into this culture of fear. Although these narratives uh, articulate a sort of resistance uh, to the state official narratives, they simultaneously, simultaneously reinstalls and reifies its power. In short, what I argue is that these narratives of state repression and migration are powerful ways through which Syrians make sense of their life. However, these stories also bear traces of the social dynamics behind the text of these individual stories. Thus, this... Syrian migrants' narratives and life experiences, even those of the second generations, cannot be disentangled from the political and social context in their country of origin. Although their testimonies are at the interstitial margins of, uh, of Syrian, they also represent an important dimension through which we can better understand the power of the past, its violence, and what has been lost with, uh, with migration. And moreover, it is uh, through these memories of violence and displacement that Assyrian sub diasporic subjectivity has been uh, constituted. The vid vivid memory of political violence became a medium through which Syrians in displacement perceived the presence of the Syrian state, despite its uh, absence. Syrians' memories and narratives of their past demonstrate that Syrian state power could be partially reproduced without the specialized effect of political borders. Indeed, the pervasiveness of the state is perceived by the diasporic subject through pain and fear that do not shape their everyday life but are deeply inscribed in their structures of, uh, of feelings. Nevertheless, these, memory, uh, these narratives and memories also evoke a sense of loss uh, of a past that could not be fully inhabited by Syrians in the diaspora. What I suggest is that fear and pain are not the only emotions that characterize the Syrian diasporic subjectivity. They also work alongside melancholia, here understood as the impossibility of mourning something that is lost. 
Syrian diaspora Malinconia is related to the violence they witness in Syria, something that deeply affected their families and uh, also their friends, as experienced by Muhammad Umahamid, as well as uh, Adil and uh, Zainab's parents. However, Malinkolia is also an effect of migration and the impossibility of visiting home for those affiliated or allegedly affiliated to a political uh, opposition party during the Hafez al-Assad regime. Judith Butler points out that grief furnishes a sense of political community of a complex order, emphasizing that grief contains the possibility of apprehending a mode of dispossession that is uh, fundamental uh, to who I am. Indeed, the possibility of mourning uh, a loss as a social and political significance through which the individual is constituted as part of a social community. With the start of the revolution, many Syrians in London began to speak out against the, the regime and thus organizing demonstrations and, and other events. It is in this moment of crisis as well as uh, renewal that a sense of collective diasporic identity started to be forged. Uh, Rahman suggested that migration itself does not give rise uh, to diasporic identification. A diaspora is characterized by the historical contingency of its moment and tends to manifest itself at the time of need. In the Syrian case, the rise of diasporic consciousness is a response to the uprising through which Syrians in London develop a new imagination uh, of community that mirrors what, was, was, uh, what happened in, in Syria at the, beginning, at the early stage of the uprising. However, the mimesis of the, uh, is not simply a repetition of uh, what happened in Syria, but it entails a process of a cultural reconfigura reconfiguration. Uh, I just want to say that this, uh, this process and the reappropriation of the past could be also perceived as uh, uh, a way of mourning what is lost and the violence. Uh, and so it's through this process that they, the Syrian diaspora can become symbolically embodying the Syrian nation, at least at the early stage of the, the revolution. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.